I'm sitting with Yoni Kamen, the heart of Yerushalayim, the WeWork Yerushalayim. Yoni Kamen is the founder and CEO of Magnum Bikes, a leading global manufacturer of electric bicycles. Uh, currently, Magnum Bikes has 5% of the entire U.S. electric bike market with distribution in New Zealand, America, and Canada. They are the number one brand of electric bikes in Israel. Uh, Yoni is also an ordained rabbi and was a founder of, of uh, Eish Torah, Tel Aviv, actually yeshiva that I studied in for six years. He made Aliyah in 2003 from Muncie, New York. Yoni, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So tell me a little bit about the attraction to electric bikes. Why are people excited about electric bikes? All right, so I can tell you from a personal perspective, when I was uh, living in Tel Aviv for two years, towards the, the end of my stint with Asia Tel Aviv, I decided I needed to move back to Yerushalayim, looking for um, a business and a product that I thought would be innovative and um, exciting. And I saw the electric bicycle uh, before it was really legal. There were a couple of people that had, you know, a few um, electric bikes on the street. And immediately I identified it as something that was going to train, completely change transportation and recreation um, for bicycles. Because, you know, many people are not in shape to ride a bicycle for long distances. Um, and also many people are just not interested in, you know, working that hard to, to get around. And it's a lot more enjoyable when you're going faster and you're working less and you can go farther and you can see th things that you otherwise aren't able to see. So you don't have to be in a car or a bus or a train to really get around. You can experience the outdoors, but you don't actually have to sweat and work hard um, to do that. So that's, that's really the, the sweet spot of transportation and recreation that you can access with an electric bicycle. You can't access with anything else. Besides that, the cost of it is very effective. It's a very efficient type of motor transportation. It doesn't cost that much money compared to other transportation. And you don't have the gasoline or insurance or, you know, uh, responsibilities, you know, annual um, upkeep. Maintenance. Amazing. Okay. And, and just to understand a little bit, how, how many years has this trend been happening? So This is very recent. Yeah. So, well, electric bikes um, really started... In the beginning of, I would say, the, the year around 2000 in China and third world countries like China and India, where they're more interested in like heavy motorcycles that were very, very cheap. Um, but it was an alternative to gasoline motorcycles. And they were using car batteries and wasn't something that could actually be used or marketed globally. And then um, probably around 2008, um, there's a, there was a big uptrend with, with Europe um, looking at electric bicycles as, you know, Europe being a very bicycle-oriented continent. Many countries there, people are riding bicycles all the time, and they're looking at it as uh, a, an additional, you know, avenue for people, primarily people that are a little bit older and not, you know, capable of biking anymore, but they've been biking their whole life long distances, and suddenly... You know, um, they have an, an alternative to be able to continue biking and bike, you know, long distances, um, even in their later um, years. So that's when it became, they started making them that were, they were much more conventional bicycles. So they were literally looked like bicycles, not like these big heavy motorcycles. You pedal and the motor just kind of kicks in and assists you. It starts... You feel like you're Superman so when you're paddling. It was almost like an assistant, assistant transportation device for individuals who were not capable of riding the real 
bicycle or real uh, motorcycle. That was kind of where the trend, you feel like. That's where the trend really started. Um, And then I think a lot of other, uh, a lot of people just identified it as an amazing um, mode of both, again, both for transportation and recreation once it was out there and being developed properly. Mm. And when I started, it was 2011. Um, The end of 2010, I was looking into it and there was no legal way to import them to Israel because there's no, there was no Tekken. So the Tekken is basically where customs um, works with the regulation, you know, regulations of Israel. This, in this case, the transportation department, and they have to have a regulation with a rule that allows you to import it based on certain criteria. At that time, they still didn't allow any importing, but people were doing it kind of one at a time. Yeah, that was basically Jimmy rigging it or something. Exactly. Do you, do you yourself? <laughs> exactly. And that's right. a very Israeli thing to do. You know? yeah, you can't, so, we can't import it. So we'll just, so build just it do it people. ourselves. Right, right. And, you know, and I don't think it's because of F-16. Right. <laughs> uh, so what's the size of the market right now worldwide, would you say? Wow. Um, so, Estimate-wise, obviously. Yeah. So, so, I mean, China does have like a, I would say like a 90% um, uh um, control of the market um, because again, but it depends what you're comparing it to. If you're looking at, you know, specifically the type of bicycles that um, are relevant to the developing world and not the the Chinese market, um, you know, it's very different. So Europe is really the market leader. Um, but as far as the size of the global market. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure in, in America, America is very behind. So I, I have all the, you know, in America in 2017, the size of the market was about, was only about $77 million. Mm-hmm. In 2018, it jumped to $150 million in 2019. And that's the market that's behind, right? Yes. So it's, it's really. So in 2019, it's projected around $300 million, million um, and it's growing very rapidly. In Holland, um, 2018, the first year that one out of every two bicycles sold was electric. Wow. Germany is one out of three. Um, so the trend is definitely um, so you know, one, getting there. One of the individuals that we, we got a chance to interview was uh, Michael Branoff, who is the founder of Movie Mobility. And he was arguing that, again, the notion that soon we might have to justify the existence of transportation by cars in, in the cities because, again, you have... Uh, 50% of the rides inside the city are less than five miles, right? So which is interesting to six, you know, 50% of all the rides people take inside the city are, are less than five miles. Sure. So why are we clogging up all these parking spots and also the transportation where we basically can encourage things like mopeds or sure. electric bikes? I mean, I mean you, you have to understand that urban development is rapidly changing. The amount of people that we're putting in small spaces, the amount, the way that we're using these you know, urban settings are is changing. But the, the, what has to change along with it is the transportation. We don't need the same type of transportation that we have, you know, to get from between cities that to be using constantly, you know, within the city. So yes, we need to develop more public transportation. We need to also have more efficient personal mobility. Amazing. So one of the things that's curious for a lot of individuals is this kind of interplay of being an entrepreneur based in Israel, but at the same time manufacturing in uh, in China, and your headquarters, your your flagship is in Utah City, right? So, Salt Lake City, yeah, Utah. So it, it's, you know, the Mormons are very blessed to have you, clearly. <laughs> Their prayers have been answered. Can you talk a little bit about when you were thinking about manufacturing, why you went to China, right? Uh, why was China the right solution? And then 
well, why was Utah City the right place in America to be able to do distribution? Besides, obviously, all the spiritual benefits of being there. <laughs> so what would you... So let me give you a quick background. So in yeah. 2011, I started my company in Israel. Um, at that point in time, I did not have my own brand. I was, I, I was one of the um, leaders making headway with, uh, butting heads with Mechonat Kanim, which is basically the regulatory body um, regulating the importing of goods. Um, and I forced them to comply with the Misrat Tachbura, the Department of Transportation, because they didn't yet know how to actually test the product in accordance with the law. Okay, um, okay. Well, let's stop there for a second. How does one uh, uh, force a government agency, which is by and large as a person, again, I grew up in the former Soviet Union, government agencies have no incentive so much to change or, or <clears> move. So can you talk for one second about how does a person have the chutzpah to force a government agency to make that change? Absolutely. Um, so as an American, I was a little bit naive um, going into the initial contact with the government agency, thinking that if there is a rule and if it's written that the Misra Tachbura and the Tzavivu Chofshi, which is basically... The, what allow what you know the law says you're allowed to import to the country technically if it's written I thought that it would be pretty simple for me to get them to comply and for me to prove that I can comply and then they, they should be able to in a free market allow me to just import whatever yes. I, I'm allowed whatever I want to based on uh, my compliance um, when I got my first container in I realized that it wasn't so I realized that the um, did not in fact because I was very early, they didn't really even know, and, and they were not incentivized, like you said, to, they didn't know how to test it, to comply. They didn't know how to test the motor, for example, to see what the output of the motor. They didn't have the machinery or tools so just or in, knowledge so to so do this. So just to understand this from what you're saying, you got the container already in like Ashdod. Or I got it in Ashdod. I invested a quite a large amount of money. And the containers, the containers there. Containers you're there. Like, I'm going to get take my, my steaks, thank you very much. And they tell you, Yoni... <laughs> This is not going to work out for us. Exactly. Um, Only once you got the container there. Right, right. So yeah. I should have quit, um, you know, but I didn't. And go back. Uh, exactly, go back to Aisha Torah. <laughs> so, you know, you know, business is, 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 looks good from the outside, but when you actually get into it, there are a lot of hardships. Yeah. Um, you know, but I, what I did was, and this is something that I, that a tool that I've used, and I suggest everybody uses it when doing business as an entrepreneur, you must pivot. You must Take every challenge that comes your way and look at it as a, you know, not just a roadblock, but if I get around this roadblock, how many other people are going to be stopped by that roadblock and how wide open is the road going to be in front of me? In other words, every block that I had along the way actually provided for me an opportunity once I got over and passed that block. When I got, for example, in this case, when I got the Mechonat the, Kanim to give me the permit to import it, import these electric motors, everyone in the industry was importing through me because I was the only person, I was the first person to have the, the, the import permit to do this. So all of a sudden, yeah, it was, it was six months of really hard, you know, working hard and really um, thinking that I was, you know, going to be um, going bankrupt and losing all my money that I invest in everything. But when I got past that, um, you know, it really did open the, the road for me. And how did I do that? I understood that, um, that, the, that, the, that, the, that the regulations was with me. And really, it's a matter of dealing with the people to try to convince them that it is there, that they are able and capable and able to comply and do their job. And when you're dealing with a government body, very often the individual people that are doing their job 
They don't want to go outside of their comfort zone. Eventually, though, um, you do find the people that push them um, and are responsible above them and push them to go out of their comfort zone and actually do what they need to do in order so to help you. So how do you identify incentives for government bodies or bureaucrats? What's a bureaucratic incentive? Okay, so first of all, stop annoying me. Yeah, yeah. Or bribes, which is right. Yeah, we don't. I never, I never resorted to bribes. Thank God, I never had to do that. But um, I just want to just copy that one more time. (laughs) Yoni came has just said something incredible. He has not resorted to bribes. You don't need to. You might think you need to here, but you don't need to. Okay, great. So so then, how do you do that? Yes. So um, first of all, it it, a lot of um, working. It's a lot of working with people. So believe it or not, like it depends on the secretary that's sitting across from you at the desk that's actually issuing you the paperwork very often. It depends on the secretary that's making the meeting with you for you to get to the, the person that's in charge. Um, if you have the proper approach and the proper communication skills and you could you know, communicate effectively and nicely, I, I find often that in Israel, especially because Israel is a more of a smaller country with people relations that, you know, make a very big difference. You know, we're all Jews and we're all, we feel like we're, you know, even the the taxi driver is going to start giving you advice in your business. You know, like you talk, so you talk to the people properly. um, And yes, it might not be simple and not not everybody has the right attitude, but eventually you do find, you do, you do find a way to break through to people um, through proper communication. That's what I believe. It's not easy, especially as an OLED. Can you give me an example of what proper communication looks like for you? So, I mean, yes, there are times that I got frustrated and the times that, you know, got upset with people and so on. Um, if you are persistent in a nice way, I believe that if you have proper midot, right, if you have the proper um, character level, um, if you come to people with when they are upset with you, right, and you still have the patience and you can still smile and talk to them nicely and explain to them how difficult it is for you in a nice way and how hard it is for you, and get them to, you know, empathize with you or get them to understand your predicament and not just look at you as like another number in the line. You know, I got to get my job done, but actually get them to have some sort of a personal connection and a, a way to communicate with the person on that level. That is extremely effective. And that is not just in Israel. That's, you know, with my suppliers in China, with my work in, you know, across with my distributors across the globe, communication, effective communication and proper character traits, characteristics, when you present your point, you don't have to change your point because you don't want to say something harsh or, or difficult for the other person to hear. You just have to present it in a proper, in the right way. So you, you can say the hard things, you know, especially when you're communicating with employees and you have difficult, you know, but throughout being, an, throughout my career as an entrepreneur, you, you have to know how to say the right things, not to avoid issue, you know, sticky issues, not to avoid difficulties, but to say it and present it in the right way, effective communi- communication, that really breaks the barriers and helps you know, push, uh, push things forward. So you were able to effectively leverage that communication to get the issue, get an opportunity to be able to bring those bikes, and originally not your own brand, but again, other brands from China to come in and start selling to shops. How did the American market open up for you? So for two years, I did that, and I became the importer, basically the sourcing channel and importer, because especially because of my English um, um, and my American uh, business values and business acumen, I was able to represent Israeli companies in, with manufacturers in China 
who, I mean, imagine, you know, how difficult it is to communicate with, with English um, being your mother tongue with the, with the Chinese. But imagine if you're, if that's not your mother tongue, imagine if you're breaking your teeth speaking English and they're breaking their teeth trying to understand somebody who even, even somebody who speaks English well. So I was able to do that for two years. Um, and then in 2013, I decided to open up my own brand. And after about two years in Israel of uh, rapidly gaining traction and market share here, um, opening up lots of new dealers and selling our product across the country. Um, and so just, I'm sorry, I'm like stopping because this is so fast. Sure. So I just want to just draw two points here. So I interviewed an individual who sells very high-end uh, intelligence software. Right? And he mentioned to me that he worked with agents in these developing countries who know all the suppliers, you know, all the government agencies. It, when you were in China, were you, was your strategy to first identify an agent who represents electrical bikes, or you went directly to the production company, or the producer manufacturers? I tried to get directly to the manufacturers as much as I could. I tried to avoid what's called trading companies. Um, okay. and what is a agents. trading company? A trading company is basically somebody that represents so we're geek themselves. out in China for a second. Sure, yeah. A trading company is basically somebody that represents themselves as as if they're selling you the product, but in, in essence, and there are tons of these guys, and you don't even know from afar who's a real manufacturer and who's just a, a trading company. So it could be a guy sitting in his office or bedroom and putting up a website with pictures of a factory and um, as if he's, he's the factory and he's basically just purchasing, he's sourcing for you. But it's a kind of a sneaky way to source because they're not telling you, hey, I want to source for you and charge you X amount of money. They're saying, hey, this, I'm the manufacturer and this is my price. And you have no idea. You're completely blindsided as the price of what it is. So I try to avoid those people so how do you, how do you as get much to, as possible. What was your, your um, approach in terms of actually getting into a manufacturing where you don't speak the language? And then when you're, how, how did you get to the place of, okay, I want to find out the manufacturer of specific type of bikes. How do you get to identify that person from Israel in China? So the first thing you do, um, first thing I did was I did research online. Um, there are a number of websites and that basically give you databases of uh, factories. Um, they have products that they showcase. They have pictures of their factories, and they have a contact of a salesperson that are represents. Are those government websites? No, are basically no, vetting no. their nonprofits and basically no, their no, due no. diligence. Or? These are profitable websites. Websites like you know AliEx, Alibaba, uh-huh. and Made in China, and there's like five or six you know big ones that. You use not to purchase, but you use to Invest. source. Yes, you can see, you can communicate with them, and you can source uh, a factory. Um, if you use them to purchase, you know you you could very easily make very big mistakes. So you don't do that. Uh, can you explain why? Well, because you're literally um, you know trying to buy something from someone that you've never actually and seen them. seen exactly, never actually seen their capability. You're taking their word for it. You're taking, looking at pictures of their supposed factory. Many of them are not, you know, legit, not real. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, they can change the the pictures on the graphics and put their own logo on it and make believe that they are all of a sudden a um, a factory where in, in reality they're not. And when you're trying to build I, I, a big I, business, I had pictures of my food uh, in, the, in the states being taken over by another website sure. somewhere. So and I get solicited by factories now in China that actually send me my pic- pictures of my bicycles. Um, asking me to buy them because they, they are the uh, factory that makes those, those bicycles. I love it. I love so. it. The, the, the wheel. It's called the cycle of life here. Uh, so, you see, so that's you, the you, first you, thing. Wait, let me just audit? finish that yeah, point. Yeah, because yeah, very important. That's the first thing. First thing you do is you just do basic research and then you communicate with them. Um, if you're at a point where you want to 
order samples. So you order samples and you test, you check their quality. Um, you know, I suggest never to really do any business with somebody without meeting them. Um, there are a lot of trade shows, exhibits that you can go to that basically allows you to get a feel and a direct um, uh, contact with um, uh, many of the manufacturers. And that's, that's the next step that I did. Went so to the trade, trade show, shows. identified some people to work with, started working with them, realized how terrible they were. Went to the next trade show, um, you know, ordered samples in the meantime, checked the quality, compared, contrasted, mark, you know, tested in the market. What was the, would you say the timeline between the first time you got the idea in 2011 to actually come into a place where you were, um, you were actually manufacturing and selling? So I got the idea towards the end of 2010. Um, uh, it took me about um, eight months to actually, um, I would say, re- get my, my goods and release them, the first, the first container of goods, um, especially because we had about five or six months at, the, at that, you know, this whole, everything got stuck. But, um, and, you know, so that's, but that was a very beginning product. That was a very early stage product. Um, you know, at the, after that, you do a lot of market research. So you're actually checking your product with people in the market. They have to come along and, you know, validate that your product really is worthwhile. It's something that they're interested in. It's something that they can sell. Um, and then you, you change and adapt your product um, according to the needs and demands it's a work in progress. It takes a long time to get, you know, continue. And, and I'm continuing to develop my product today. I think every company um, that does what I do, manufacturing, designing goods, um, are constantly, you know, improving. But, you know, from day one, ordering the samples um, to actually getting my first container took me probably around uh, three months, three, four months. Amazing. Now, just a, word, a quick word about the States. How were you able to transition from a small, you know, small distribution land, manufacturing brand in Israel, now can now stand to go to a big market like the States? So I always knew that um, Israel is a, is a small market. You know, it's, it's only, there's only a few million people here. It's a small country. Um, not to put down the, the, the economy in Israel and the amounts of opportunity that there is in Israel, but I knew, I looked at Israel more as a mm. uh, stage one. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of companies do. You know, it's a pilot or a stage one. It's close quarters. You're able to, you know, get a lot of experience, develop your product, develop your brand. Once I had all those tools, so I had the supply chain down, I had the developed product down, I had my branding and brand and website and all those stuff down, I was able to, you know, just basically create a new business card, copy the, the website and make it, you know, a .com instead of a COIL, and then start testing the, the waters and testing the market in the U.S., with an existing platform. So I wasn't starting a new company in America. Uh-huh. It was just basically capitalizing on the years of experience that I had and the supply chain and products that I had. Why Salt Lake City? So um, believe it or not, the, my first um, employee that I hired um, for uh, was from Salt Lake City. And it was somebody that I actually met through Asia Torah years and years ago. You know, it's not, it's not what you know, see, it's who you know. See, people think Harvard. <laughs> you go to Harvard, you go Yale, I tell you. The kind of relationships I built through my four years living in the Moshav dorms in Aisha Torah is uh, worth of any good network. Exactly. So he was an excellent, um, you know, uh, salesman and somebody that I really trusted and I could rely on. And um, he was from Salt Lake City. We started there when I wanted to move the company to California because that was where most of the business was. And that's where the warehouse and the port was and everything else. I realized that the cost of doing business in California was really um, inhibitive. 
And I decided that Salt Lake City had also a great uh, pool of uh, potential employees to choose from and, you know, trustworthy and reliable um, employees to, to build the business on. And it wasn't expensive to actually build the company from there. Since we're doing distribution anyways, it didn't really need to be in California. We can, you know, Salt Lake City was a little bit more centrally located um, as well. So and it's a great outdoors place and it's beautiful and it's got skiing. <laughs> I think I think Salt Lake City has. Do they have um, the only kosher restaurant in the slopes? So yeah, in the canyons in Some, Park City, there's a kosher else. restaurant that's open like, um, for like a week. No, it's open <laughs> for, for the ski season. But it's very exciting. It's very and exciting. It's but that's great. not the reason why you should open up an empire for electrical bikes. The real uh, reason why we went to Park. That's right. Um, so, so like zooming out um, a little bit more about the lessons that we can learn from as entrepreneurs who are Olim. What would you say are some of the some of the lessons you would distill of, of successful rules of of you've kind of gone through this amazing transformation from being a rabbi and educator to then becoming a, a manufacturer, right? So it's just, sure. how do you distill these lessons for Olim who are looking to move to Israel, have a business potentially, who are they looking to start a business in Israel and they're just scared, like I'm gonna fail, I don't know if I can make this culture happen. So first of all, I would say, hold on to your values and your belief system and don't get discouraged if the environment around you doesn't necessarily seem conducive to those, um, you know, ethics and values. So coming as an Olet um, to Israel, Israel's a little bit of an aggressive market. Um, there's some sort of, you know, culture that's a little bit more aggressive and a lot of Olim are turned off. And what they end up doing is they end up just staying within the Olet community trying to make businesses just to cater to Americans because they have this, you know, approach that's different than the rest of the Israelis. I actually found that approach to be very valuable. Um, And although on the surface, maybe the Israelis don't necessarily connect to it or immediately, but they do appreciate um, when we come with our perspective or our way of doing things, you know, if you stick to your values and you don't change and try to become aggressive like them or try to, you know, um, um, pretend that you can be a part of, you know, the culture, um, even if you don't believe in it, um, it, it goes a long way. Um, again, you need a little bit more patience, but it does go a long way and it actually breaks a lot of barriers. Um, and then of course your values, as far as, you know, what you, what you believe in as a human being and as a person and how, how to treat other people and, um, and so on. Um, I also think that, um, that you should not give up um, because I think that and that's just a general rule for entrepreneurship in, in, in general. Um, anybody that has um, had some any type of success definitely has to go through a number of failures in order to get that success. And you should look at every road blo- roadblock as an opportunity um, and be, you got to be flexible enough to um, continue to move and, and, and shape shift, so to speak, whenever there are these blocks put in front of you. Would you say that how, how important is a family support? That's, that's something that I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs who have families here. It's very different from San Francisco, for example, where we by average have the least amount of children per capita with more animals than children. So the reality is you yourself have, I think, four beautiful children? Five like, children. Five children, yeah, and right. you have a big staff that you're responsible for. Uh, any advice for Liam about balancing the importance and emphasis on family, 
and also being an entrepreneur who's a manufacturer, global, global business, any advice that has, they found has worked for you or anything that you can tell us that we should be, just yeah. avoid my mistakes because it's terrible, <laughs> <laughs> which is all, both beneficial for us. You know? Yeah. If you pull out your rabbi hat for a second, tell us. Yeah. Like, no. So for one, um, you really have to know what's, you have to, you have to know your priorities and it's very easy to get distracted from your priorities when you're involved in business because you have a tremendous amount of an overwhelming amount of work and people and tasks that are relying on you. And you could work around the clock nonstop and forget, you know, forget your responsibilities towards yourself, you know, as well as towards your friends and family, of course. Um, I think family is, I think, I think in order to be a well-rounded, healthy individual, um, you definitely need to put an emphasis on those things that are valuable, you need to make a list of priorities, what's more important and, and uh, what's less important to you. I think that kind of does, um, you know, uh, vary person to person. Some people do value family um, more than anything else. Um, I, I could tell you my Chinese uh, business uh, suppliers and, and associates all are very surprised when I tell them I have five children and they're mostly surprised that I can actually work. <laughs> Not just, you know, the fact that I have five children, but how do you actually run a business? You <laughs> yeah. know? How do you just like, like I, you know, they're like, well, I know how to do this because I have no children. But, you know, how do you do this with your family? So I, I try never to stay to go away for more than one Shabbat um, uh, consecutively. Um, I try to put a big emphasis on spending time and doing doing things with my children um, as much as I possibly can. You showed me this beautiful picture of your son in a, like Italian I don't want to call them Alps. Are they Alps? The Alps, yeah. yeah. And there's I a go, beautiful picture of you taking, like... Is I take that, my son skiing every year. I go that, skiing with the family. Is that rituals that you have set up Absolutely, absolutely. Can you absolutely. tell us, like, maybe um, you can share two rituals that sure. so, we, can, uh, we can learn? So every, okay, so every summer, um, uh, I take my family back to New York to visit um, family. So we usually go for about, this is, you know, for 16 years we've been doing this. Um, we usually go for anywhere between, you know, three weeks to up to eight weeks. We went one time for eight weeks. Um, and that gives, that really gives them a, an ability to, to reframe and kind of have focused family time. So even though I'm working, you know, you're out of the regular ritual of, of what we're doing and you're also with other families. So it's, it's very important to have that. Um, and I do take trips, you know, all as much as I can afford, um, time-wise and, uh, and, uh, and with my, with my children, um, before Pesach, we go away. Um, I, Other locations that you would recommend for us? That uh, absolutely, I think is, first of all, Israel is absolutely beautiful. Um, we usually go once a year to Eilat around Hanukkah time. That's a beautiful time of the year. Um, I also try to go um, up to the uh, Hermon area um, around springtime. That's absolutely stunning, um, and it's close, and there's kosher food. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you check up all the boxes. Yeah, exactly. I, li- um, it's, I like how Yoni has just picked the two places which are the most farthest from each other. So because like it's only divided by seasons because that's uh, the <laughs> exactly. time you travel. Um, is there any last uh, piece of advice or piece of wisdom you want to share with us people who are listening that you think would be beneficial? Or like, a, a, you know, if you would boil down everything for, to an essence, what would that be? So I think you have to ask yourself why. Why are you in Israel? And, um, you know, often it's like, it's like a love story, right? When you start, when you, when you get into, a, if a couple has a fallout many years later, 
right? What the, the, the best advice that you can get is you can think back to yourself and say, one second, what was it that got me to fall in love with this, you know, woman or man in the first place? And then all of a sudden, you, you can reframe and focus on the, on the great, amazing, positive things. And I think people initially, you know, come in a very idealistic sense to Israel. And most of the olim that I know, if not all of the olim that I know, are making these decisions making the decision to make Aliyah based on an idealistic decision. They're not making it for financial reasons or for family. You know, we don't have more family here. We don't have more money here. We don't, we don't have an easier time, you know, getting along here. Yes. I, I would say similarly, it's funny, to, with marriage, I would say idealism is a driving point in a lot of so many marriages. It's not better for a 1K. Right, exactly. And, and, and when you lose that, if you lose that passion at a certain point in time in the future... Um, you know, it's really important to remember why is it that I'm doing this? You know, for me, many Israelis, both religious and non-religious, would ask me, why in the world did you come from America to Israel? What are you doing? What are you looking for over here? You know, and I know that my neshama, my soul, is happier and more complete in Israel. And I feel like I'm a big, a part of, you know, the big nation of the Jewish people, a part of the rebuilding of the Jewish homeland, a part of a spiritual pursuit that really justifies, you know, my existence and makes me feel fulfilled. And when you start losing sight of that or you forget, you know, what it is, those idealistic reasons that you made Aliyah in the first place, um, it's very easy to just, you know, give up and go home, so to speak. But when this is your home, you know, and this and, and you understand, you stay connected to the reasons why you made Aliyah in the first place, and then all those challenges are, you know, are, are, are able to be overcome. And, um, and you, you really do continue to gain that sense of fulfillment. Um, and it's not just about a matter of your materialistic um, pursuits. And that's what makes a person. It's not just your materialism. It's, it's the entire picture, you know. So, yeah, we want to be successful physically and materialistically. But we also want to be mentally healthy. We want to be emotionally stable, emotionally healthy. We want to feel like we're doing, you know, something that's meaningful, that's powerful. We want to feel like we're touching something that's greater than ourselves, you know, and, and that's what you need to focus on when you're, when you're living in Israel. Um, and that's what Israel really has to offer, you know. I, I have to tell you that uh, uh, I've read a piece of wisdom from a certain individual named Avram Cook, and he spoke about this being a natural habitat. And I think anyone who feels like the long term will feel like it's natural habitat for our growth. It's like, you know, a zoo can be as much as possible um, created to be a natural habitat. But in, in, in the end, somebody's still bringing you the food and you're not hunting it in the wild, right? So right. Um, I'm, I'm touched and deeply moved by the business people that I've met because an underlying facet of that, that unique element of they're here because of a Zionism that's deeply fueled by something fundamentally more than just a thirst for money. And... Um, Thank you so much for sharing with me your sure. wisdom. And uh, again, thank you for having such an amazing product as well. It's uh, thank you. a lot of us. You know, thank you for also uh, taking interest in the Olim. And, uh, and uh, hopefully we can learn you know, one from another and uh, be successful together and develop uh, our beautiful Israel so as our homeland.